Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into uh, this space. We're so glad to be able to gather to worship King Jesus together. And those of you that are gathering uh, with us from home, thank you for bringing the church into uh, your living room, dining room, and thanks for inviting us into those spaces. And if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, my name's Jamie. It is my great joy and privilege uh, to serve as one of the pastors at Crosspoint uh, and a great privilege that I have to be able to open up God's word. As we continue uh, this series through the great book of John, we've entitled it Come and See, that there's this invitation that we see over and over again uh, to the people of the world, right, to all of us of come and see and meet the real Jesus. And so whether you're new to Christianity, exploring Christianity, you're like, I don't care anything about Christianity, or you're somebody that's like, I love Jesus, worship Jesus, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Wherever you are on that, that spectrum, the invitation is, well, come and see. Maybe come and see and experience him for the first time. Come and see and experience him in new and fresh ways because the good news of the gospel is that it is always relevant and speaks to us in whatever it is that you brought in here uh, this morning. And so as we get into it, we're going to be looking at the second and third signs of Jesus. We're going to be at the back half of chapter 4, uh, which we'll read in just a minute, and then the first part of chapter Five, But to kind of set things up this morning, kind of where we're going as we look at these miracles of Jesus, and sometimes when we see a miracle or we hear it, we read it, we might think, well, that's amazing, but what does that have to do with my life right now? So let me kind of frame this because I think it has a lot to say to you and me, even if the particulars of the story might look a little bit different. And so a number of years ago, I read a book by the author, an author that I appreciate uh, by the name of David Brooks. On his, The book was called On Paradise Drive. Let me read this to you. And he's describing American culture. He's describing the world that you and I uh, inhabit, whether we're aware of it or not. Like, I think this is an accurate depiction of just why so often we even feel just exhausted, like run ragged, just like, man, like, okay, like, whew, another week. It's just kind of this, this grind. And so here's what he says. He says, in the land of abundance, people work feverishly hard. They cram their lives insanely full because the candies are all around them looking up and pleading, taste me, taste me, taste me. And people in such a realm live in a perpetual aspirational trance. They are bombarded from first waking till nighttime's last thought by advertisements, images, messages, novelties, improvements, and tales of wonder. And it takes a force of willpower beyond that of most ordinary people to renounce all this glorious possibility. It's easier to work phenomenally long hours, grasp at all the candies, than it is to say no. It takes incredible dedication to renounce opportunity, to get off the conveyor, and to be content with what one is. And so he's driving at this Reality. He's describing this reality. I think that all of us feel. So what I want to focus in on this morning, even as we get into chapter 5, and there's this interaction Jesus has on the Sabbath, and it creates all sorts of controversy. All right, I want us to think through what would it look like for you and I to move from religion to rest, to move from religion to a rest, a renewal in the gospel, that we might actually know who we are in Christ to such an extent that regardless of what's happening circumstantially, we wouldn't feel this sort of cultural uh, just exhaustion that religion produces. And maybe a way, just so you know kind of what I mean by that, what we're thinking about when we use that term religion in the gospel, because religion, that word shows up in the Bible, it doesn't always have negative connotations, but the way I'm using it here is in a negative. Like there's this sense that religion espouses this truth, all right? I obey. I obey all that the Bible has to say, therefore I will be accepted. And that, my friends, leads to exhaustion. 
But the good news of the gospel is I'm accepted. No merit of my own, through the finished work of Christ, I'm accepted, therefore then, I obey. Like I live in glad obedience and submission to King Jesus. And so these miracles that we're gonna see, though again, the particulars might be different from your life and my life, it drives at this. Are we gonna live according to the religion narrative that you gotta do more, you've gotta achieve, or are we gonna live according to the invitation of Jesus to come and to rest? So I wanna go ahead and read this text and we'll make our way back through it. And as we look at these two different accounts, we're gonna, there's some parallel things that happen in each of them, so we will, in essence, sort of examine both at the same time. But as always, if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter four, beginning in verse 43. And if you didn't bring a Bible, I would invite you to take your phone out device and go to cplife.church, swipe over the second card that is there. It says message notes. Anything that's on the screen this morning, including the text, will be there. So let me read this, and then we'll make our way back through this glorious section of scripture. And so, the context, again, last week we looked at Jesus traveling into Samaria. He interacts with the woman at, at the well, all right? And now, after staying there in Samaria for a couple days, he's continuing his journey, and he's moving north to Galilee, all right? Verse 43. After two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when they entered Galilee, the Galileans actually welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone to the festival. And he went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. That was the first sign that John tells us about. And there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to, uh, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and to heal his son since he was about to die. And Jesus told him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Verse 50, go, Jesus told him, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. And while he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was alive. And he asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered and the father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. So that's sign number two. Now we get sign number three as Jesus heals this man who's been crippled. Chapter five, beginning in verse one. After this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and realized that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes ahead of me. Verse eight, get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now, and this is a key detail here, the day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath, and the law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, hey, the man who made me well told me pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you to pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed, he actually did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Verse 14. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. 
Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. So this is God's word for us this morning. It is timely. It is incredibly relevant to what you and I are experiencing in this world. Even if, as I said, we look at this and are like, I don't know if the particulars match up with my own life. In this, we are seeing some key truths that I think we need to explore this morning. If we're going to move from this exhaustion of religion into a place of a deep rest in who we are in Christ. All right. And so, as I said, we're going to look at both of these in parallel. The first thing I want to put before you that we see, this first way to move, is we have to admit our need. And we see that in both of these encounters that Jesus has with these particular individuals, that they admit, we'll look at this more closely, they are willing to admit their need. That the man travels from Capernaum to Cana, all right, which is about 25 miles. So on foot, this man is booking it because he hears that Jesus is there. And the language is, he's like pestering Jesus. Like, Jesus, please come. Please come to my town. My, my boy is ready to die. He doesn't care who hears it. He doesn't care if he's being annoying or nagging or any of that. He's just bent on Jesus, I need you to do something. He's well aware of his need. And then we'll look at Jesus' interaction even with the, the crippled man. But obviously, that, that's pretty obvious. 38 years he'd been living with this. Whether he was born with it and he's 38 years old now, or it happened to him after some injury, and now he's whatever age, plus 38, he's been dealing with this for a long time. This is asking us to consider, like, will you and I actually admit our need? And if we're honest, I think at one level, we can all respond. Well, of course, nobody's perfect. I admit that I need some stuff. But that stays at sort of a generic kind of superficial level. Like there's something in the human heart that doesn't want to admit need. Now, I've made reference to this before um, as uh, I've, I've got myself in trouble when I've equated, you know, I've had kidney stones before, so I know what it's like for women when they give birth. Like I've made that whole thing before. That didn't go over well, all right? So, um, but let me tell you though, about seven or eight years ago, um, I did wake up. It was literally the day after Easter, all right? So just gotten through all like Easter services and all of that. And I woke up at about four or five in the morning, just like this incredible excruciating pain that I had no idea what was happening. So I called the Heather from the bathroom and I'm like, it's over, I'm dying, all right? Just want you to, to know. And so I was like screaming and crying out and then it would sort of subside. I was like, oh, I think, I, I think I'm okay. Um, and then, oh, and then it would like come on again and I'd be screaming and crying. She's like, we're going to the hospital. I'm like, no, 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 it'll be too expensive. She's like, get in the car. I was like, no, 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 our insurance said, no, 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 right? So we had like this, this whole thing, but then the pain would kick in. I'd be like, oh, okay, I'm going, we'll get, we'll get in the car. And so we had this moment, we, we drove there. And so yes, I'm admitting my need at one level, and yet I'm also trying to hold on to my pride, maybe my dignity a little bit, right? Um, and I'm still unwilling to admit the amount of pain. Like I'm still trying to pretend like, I'm strong, like I've got this together, to the point that we walked into the emergency room, all right, um, and the, one of the nurses came up and said, sir, um, I see you're in pain, do, do, you, do you need anything? Can I get you a wheelchair? And I said, no, I don't need a wheelchair, um, and then proceeded to empty the contents of my stomach onto the emergency room floor right then. Across the way is an old elderly woman that is very frail who's in a wheelchair. She gets up out of her wheelchair, pushes it over to me, and says, sir, you need this more than I do, all right? <laughs> so we just have this moment, and I'm like, oh, like incredibly humbling. Uh, sort of. Now, I tell you that because 
There is, right? There's something in the human heart that just doesn't want to admit, like, hey, I need some help here. Like, I, I don't know what's going on. And that, and that can be kind of a humorous thing, but what if we just play that out? Like, what if we continue to hold on to that mindset of, like, not admitting our need? This passage confronts us with an invitation, really, to call out and to cry out to Jesus the way the man did this for his son, the way that the crippled man who's been crippled for 38 years is fully aware, like, I need some help. And so, as I said, this man goes from Capernaum to Cana, and over and over again, he's like, sir, come down before my boy dies. And the language there, the tense of the verbs, I mean, it's like kind of just constant. It's like over and over and over again. And then if we look at the interaction with the man who's been crippled, and this is a bit puzzling, right? Like, I don't think Jesus was ever rude. He certainly didn't sin. Um, but at first glance, I read this, and I'm like, okay, what, what's going on here? So if you look back with me, um, in chapter 5, verse 5 says, the man who was there had been disabled for 38 years. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, realized he'd been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? So you got this sort of confronting question here. Do you want to get well? Now, the reason that's surprising to me a bit in this confronting question is like, isn't it obvious, right? Like, the man is there. Clearly, he's in need of some help. I mean, contextually even, if you had, your, if you had a Bible with you right now, one of the things you might even notice is there was no verse 4. Like, if you were reading through, there's verse 3, and then it jumps to 5. It's like, what happened? It disappeared, right? Like what? Because in some of the manuscripts over the years, there was a note that was kind of added to explain contextually what's going on, but it probably wasn't original to the scriptures. And so it's been taken out, so it goes from three to, to five, so there's not a misprint in your Bible, any, anything like that. But contextually, what would have happened is there was this particular pool, and somewhere it became sort of like a superstitious belief that an angel of God every once in a while would visit that particular location, that pool, and would stir up the waters. And when you notice the water being stirred up, right, if you were the first one to get into the water, whatever ailment, whatever thing you were dealing with, whatever sickness, disease, it would be healed. So that's the reason this man and others would have been there. And most commentators, too, would say, like, if you were to travel back, I mean, not to get, like, too gross with it, but if you just picture, like, you got all these people, kind of this mass of humanity. Most of them are not able to care for themselves. They're not able to bathe. There wouldn't have been good, like, sanitary practices and such. Like, it would have been kind of a revolting sort of like, like, oh, gosh, like, what's happening here? Like, so all around even was reinforcing, like, this is a place of brokenness and of pain. And then Jesus rolls up and is like, do you want to get well? Like, why would he ask that? Because clearly the man wants to, to get well. And the man, what he reverts to right away is he begins to take matters into his own hands, so to speak. It's like, hey, anytime the water gets stirred up, like somebody always beats me to it, which you feel for the man, right? It's like, how in the world is the guy who's been crippled for 38 years going to be the first one into the water? It's likely not to happen. But Jesus knows as much as it would bring joy to this man to heal his legs, he has a much deeper spiritual need. And so when Jesus says, do you want to get well, the man thinks he's asking about his physicality, right? And though it includes that, Jesus is saying, hey, do you want to get well at the deepest possible level? And if you do, do you realize 
that I, who I am that I'm making you well and what you, in essence, like the calling on your life will be as now I'm your Lord and what would it look like to follow me? And what was true of the man back then is true of every single one of us. That the call is not simply to just sort of like, oh, give lip service, yeah, I believe in Jesus, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sinner, but really desperately to know like, I admit my need and I'm clinging to Jesus because there's a work Jesus is telling this man that he wants to do, and it's a work not only in their life, but our life. And what it's confronting again, I mean, because the mindset is what? The waters get stirred up. It's up to me to get in the water. And you look at that, and you're like, that's impossible. This dude is in a bad spot. He's never going to get it. And when that truth comes home about the crippled man to who you are and who I am, we're starting to actually get it. Because in the same way, it was unlikely Nearly impossible for that man to get in the water. It is impossible for me to save me. I cannot do enough good things to make God accept me. Religion, again, is I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And the good news of the gospel, the life we're invited into, is I'm accepted through no merit of my own, through the finished work of Jesus, and therefore I obey. And so even this story is reminding us you can't do it in your own effort. And so Jesus is getting this man to consider this. And he's getting us to consider it. Now, look what happens then after they admit their need. There is these responses where they actually believe what Jesus says. They actually follow through. They believe what Jesus says to them. And so we'll look at these interactions. But before we get there, as Jesus is interacting with the man whose son is ill, and it tells us he's a royal official, which even that is just another indicator of Everybody needs the grace of God. I mean, on the surface, a royal official, right, we don't know all the details, but he would have been some of the elite of society. He would have had every resource, but he's starting to see his need. It's why I've said for years and years and years, like, it is a very dangerous space and place that you and I inhabit because we can kind of do things on our own. We can have enough financial resources. We can kind of live the life that we want to, and it can lull us into thinking that we're okay. We need to see our need to have it exposed. And so what ends up happening, even this, this man here, who likely is even a Gentile, it's another way of Jesus saying he's breaking through all the kind of categories. I'm gonna go reach this, this person. Jesus says to them, after he makes the request to heal his son, he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And so this is key because what we're going to see, there's the second sign and the third sign, and Jesus actually does heal the man's son. And he actually does heal the crippled man, and he's able to walk and pick up his mat, like all of that. But what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, listen, some of you are just going to see the sign, and you're going to like that, and you're going to be mesmerized by that. That's why the crowds began to follow him. But he's like, if that is all you're caught up in, you're actually missing the point. Maybe a way to think about it is like you are mistaking the sign for the destination. And so I've used this illustration before, and I'm not super creative, so I'm going to go with it again, all right? Um, but picture this. You all know this, right? There's a place about 30 minutes from where we are right now, maybe 45, depending on I-4 traffic, right? Probably 45 minutes. Uh, it's the happiest place on earth, right? Or at least it's told to us that, that it's going to be, right? That there's Disney World. Now imagine that you are somebody that are going to visit Disney World for the first time, and so it's you, maybe kids or friends or family members or with grandparents, I don't know. You just picture like however you're going there, 
Maybe you're like, I like to go to Disney alone. Okay, whatever, whatever, however it is for you. And so you load up and you get there and you come into a spot where you see this sign, right? You see something that, that looks like that, all right? And there it is. It's like, oh, we're right on the cusp of the happiest place on earth, all right? We're ready to, we're ready to go. This is it. Now, how silly would it be, and you know this would be ridiculous, if at that moment, like, you got the kids out or your friends and you pile out of, like, whatever vehicle you're in. It's a minivan in this case, right? So you pile out and you get out there by the, the sign, and you're like, woohoo, like we're here, Disney, we love it, we made it, it's, a, it's amazing. And car after car after car kind of whizzes by, and people are looking at you in a very quizzical way, like, do they, what are they doing? They know, this is the entrance. That's the sign pointing you to where the experience is, to the deeper reality. And so to stop there at the side of the road and be like, woohoo, we're, we're in, is a colossal mistake. You're, just, you're mistaking the sign for the destination. And so when Jesus says these words, what he's telling them is like, hey, I'm going to do something that's going to blow your mind. This is amazing. But if you think that's the point, you have mistaken the sign for the destination. I'm the destination. I'm the Messiah. I'm inviting you to be in relationship with me. So you can stand on the side of the road or you can enter in, all right? And as amazing as Disney might be, this is so much better, all right? That's the invitation that is before the man who's got the son that is ready to die. It's the invitation that is before the man who is crippled. And it's the invitation for every single one of us. Now, if we think, well, I've not been around those signs, so clearly I'm not mistaking the sign for the destination. Anytime you and I just sort of look at this, oh, that's a, that's a cool story that's here or I like Jesus' teaching, we are doing the exact same thing. We are stopping with just what was meant to point us, to usher us in to the reality, to the presence of God. That's what's on offer here, all right? So it tells us, as Jesus interacts with the man whose son is sick, um, it says, the man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. And so he believes, now, what's so interesting, and I think there's a really interesting clue here about, is the man just believing the sign, or is the man starting to believe who Jesus actually is? Well, it tells us that eventually he starts to travel home, and on his way, one of his servants, who decided to head towards Cana, so they, at some point their paths cross, and he has this conversation. He's like, oh, your son is healed. He's alive. He's doing well. And the man asks, like, hey, what time did this happen yesterday? It was around 1 p.m. Like, that's the exact time that Jesus said this. And so, again, their mind's blown. It's like, wow, this, this is amazing. The most amazing part, though, to me is he says yesterday. Isn't it fascinating? Like, he's, he is, like, with every bit of urgency in his body, tracking Jesus down, travels the 25 miles, all right, gets there, out of breath, Jesus, you got to do this, Jesus, you got to do this. And Jesus says, like, go, like, your, your son is going to be healed. And he doesn't book it back to Capernaum right away. It's the next day, which tells me something about the man's belief, the man's disposition at this point. I think he's starting to realize, like, I mean, that's amazing, but there's something even better that is on offer here. Similarly, as he interacts with the man that's been crippled for 38 years, Jesus, you know, he tells him, hey, he asks him, do you want to get well? The man goes through the whole thing about no one, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. He's still operating with a mindset that, 
yeah, I do, but I don't know how I'm gonna do it. And everything that I've been doing is trying to do it in my own strength. And Jesus says to him these words, get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Now, verse nine just reinforces, I think, this idea of how the gospel is so different from religion. Religion will lead to exhaustion, thinking you've got to do it, you've got to fix your situation. And so in verse nine, it tells us instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. It's not that he picked up his mat, attempted to walk, and got healed. He's healed, right? We think the gospel, I'm accepted, and now I'll walk it out. Now I'll live in glad obedience. Now I will believe not just the sign, but I will believe who Jesus is, the word made flesh. Like that God is, it's, it's God in the flesh. Like that's what's beginning to take place here. So instantly the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Like if you're looking for just an image of what it looks like as a follower of Christ, God heals you. God gives you Jesus' righteousness. This is what takes place on the cross when we trust in him. And yes, now we walk it out, not to earn anything, but in a glad submission to like, I've been healed, I've been set free, I've been renewed, restored, like everything that my heart is longed for. Even if you're not physically crippled, we are spiritually crippled, bankrupt, on our way to hell, and Jesus says, I'll take all of your sin, I'll take all of your brokenness, I'll take all of your treason, and I will die in your place, and you get to go free. You get to be in the presence of God. You get to get ushered in. And so when he says this to this man then, as he has this interaction, do not sin anymore, which at first glance can be like, oh man, like that's an impossible task. What Jesus is really asking him here is like, hey, in light of the grace that you've received, like how are you now going to live? What is God gonna do in and through you? What's your story going to look like? Because as we will see later on in the book of John, as there's a Jesus interaction with a blind man, the pervading, pervasive mindset, because the disciples ask him, oh, he's blind. Did he sin or did his parents? Like, that's the punishment, right? And Jesus is like, neither. I'm, I'm doing this so I can demonstrate my glory and power. And it's not that there's not consequences to sin, but to just assume like, oh, this person has this, the man's crippled because he messed up somewhere. That's not what Jesus is driving at. But when he calls him, do not sin anymore, He's telling him, listen, there's a whole new way to live. Will you live in light of the grace that you've received? It's not a call to be perfect because he couldn't do that. But he's saying, will you live now? Will you live no longer according to religion of like, I've got to do this. I've got to get myself into the waters and realize you've been cleansed. You've been set free. Now, I wish the story ended there and it's like, wow, this is amazing. But it creates controversy. And this is what happened to Jesus. Everywhere he went, the crowds gathered, they celebrated, and yet there's some that don't like what he's doing because he's blowing up the paradigms. He's blowing up the expectations. People whose entire life had been built on religion, as exhausting as that is, it's familiar. And I wish I could say that I'm different, but there are so many things in my life that I wish were different, but because they're familiar, I can just stay stuck in those same patterns. And it's hard sometimes to trust that Jesus and his way is actually better. What would it look like to obey his word in all areas of my life? And so you've got this group of people that are just bent on like, I just wanna control it. And so did you notice as we look here at this, I want us to consider the cost. Like if we're going to live 
in glad obedience to Jesus. We've been accepted through Christ, and now how do we live in light of the grace that we've received? I think we have to go back again and again and again to consider the cost. And this passage, these particular verses, are a way of John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, pointing ahead to ultimately what it's going to cost Jesus. And so as we, as we look at this, it tells us, I'll, I'll just read a portion of it here. There's this, it tells us it was on the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. All right, and I love the response of the guy. He's like, uh, I don't know. The man who made me well told me pick up your mat and walk, right? So I'm thinking if I'm the man who'd been crippled, I'm like, this dude healed me. He told me to pick up my mat, skip, jump rope, do whatever. Like, I'm all in, right? Like, this guy, I'm listening to him. And I wish that the, the Jewish people on that, like, had celebrated with him. And I wish I could say, oh, I can't believe the Jewish people didn't celebrate with him. Like, there's something in my heart that doesn't want to celebrate the, the grace of God. And what do they do right away? They revert back to religion. They right away are like, hey, I don't care if you were healed. You're carrying your mat. And that was one of the rules that was forbidden. Like, you literally couldn't carry a mat on the Sabbath. So this guy's in clear violation. Their whole way of life is being disrupted. And what begins to happen, it tells us, it says, the Jews began from that point on persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And that persecution would ultimately end with Jesus going to the cross. And so what we're beginning to see and what I want us to consider here is maybe this, this question, is Jesus breaking the Sabbath here or is he actually creating the Sabbath? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He comes in and what he's really doing is he's creating rest for this man. He's creating ultimate healing. He's doing more than simply healing his legs. He's healing all of who he is. And what he's done for you and for me is to offer us ultimately what we need, a rest in him. You don't have to strive, you don't have to perform, you don't have to pretend. He's actually creating that. But the way that the Sabbath gets created, the way that rest and renewal comes, it comes at incredible cost. Not to you and not to me, but it does come at a great cost to Jesus. And we're already seeing this in this passage where it says they begin to persecute him. And this persecution would ramp up as we continue to study this and ultimately will end with Jesus being betrayed by all of his followers, dispersing and scattering, and Jesus being put on a Roman cross. And what happens there on the cross, in order for us to get the Sabbath, to get the rest and the renewal that we need and long for and we're created for, there's gotta be a substitute. And we're already seeing this. I mean, isn't it crazy? Jesus is healing, Jesus is helping this man, and suddenly he starts to get persecuted. And if he's gonna bring the ultimate cosmic rest and renewal, it's going to cost him his life. And so what we see in the scriptures and what this is pointing to, and what we need to continually come back to, to find rest is to consider the cost. Consider the fact that Jesus, as 2 Corinthians chapter five tells us, it says, uh, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is the greatest deal you could possibly ever get in on. It's unbelievable. You and I deserve death. You and I deserve separation from God. That is what hell is. That's what we deserve. And Jesus says, I'll take that on. I'll cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I will be substituted like in your place. I'll die the death that you deserve so that you can be brought in. 
And this is why Paul says, which is so fascinating, at the beginning in verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 5, so we're pleading on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Or maybe another way to say it is like, find the rest, find the renewal, quit trying to do it in your own strength. Are you exhausted? Come to Jesus. Yes, for the first time, but also for the Christian, continue to come to him and to lay it at his feet. And so the question for us becomes, will you and I rest in the finished work, in the healing presence of Jesus? Will you give up trying to do it in your own strength? And like the man who cried out, I need you to heal my son, and like the crippled man who understood his need and his brokenness, it was very apparent, they're admitting their need, they're believing the work, not just the signs, they're coming to believe in Jesus and to trust him. So I'll close with this. This is the invitation. I remember reading this book in seminary by a guy named Craig Barnes, and it has always stuck with me, not because, oh, I live this out perfectly, but more because I need this to be pounded into my head over and over and over again. Because the default of my heart and of your heart, humanity's heart, is what do we do? What do we achieve? And the gospel is, will you come and rest in the finished work of Jesus? And so hear this quote as we get ready to prepare for communion in a moment. It says, from the beginning, we have been created to be receivers, not achievers. Nothing is more countercultural to contemporary Americans. We've been raised to set our goals high, work hard, and achieve our dreams. Clearly, there is merit to this work ethic, but it has limits. And the greatest one is that it seduces us into thinking that we are the creators of our own destinies. And the only destiny that comes from receiving uh, or, sorry, the only destiny that comes from reaching for whatever we want is finding ourselves east of Eden. Every page of the Bible presents God as the achiever and us as the receivers of this sacred good work. So every day this week, you have to decide if you want to achieve your life or receive it. If you make achieving your goal, your constant companion will be complaints. I wish that wasn't true. That was me. That is me. Because you will never achieve enough. If you make receiving the goal, your constant companion will be gratitude for all that God is achieving in your life. And I'm not certain that there are such things as measures of our spirituality. But if there are, then gratitude is probably the best one. It indicates that we are paying attention. Are you and I paying attention to the grace that is offered? Are you and I paying attention to the difference between religion and the gospel? Are you and I paying attention to all that Christ has achieved for us and that we are the beneficiaries, we receive his grace? So church, in a moment, the worship team's gonna come back up and we're gonna offer praise, our gratitude to King Jesus. We are gonna participate in this meal this communion meal, the Lord's Supper. So if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come to the table to get the elements, bring them back to your seat, and we'll partake together after the song concludes. For those of you that are gathered with us at home, you can get elements together and participate if you're a follower of Christ. And even this meal, right, is this tactile, tangible reminder. We receive, we take it in. We didn't earn anything. But Jesus did it all for us. And so as I pray, be thinking through this, not only today, but spend some time after the service and the days and the, the weeks ahead asking the Holy Spirit, 
lead me, Spirit, in, in repentance, the ways that I've thought it was up to me and what I do. And then would you remember and rest in the finished work of Christ to receive his grace, perhaps for the first time, but always like again and again and again. And then we get, to, we get to rejoice together. And so we're gonna do that right now, but it's not the only time. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So all of life is meant to be lived with gratitude and response that we are receivers, not achievers. But church, we have this unique opportunity right here, right now, to rejoice together. So I'm gonna pray, ask the Spirit to lead us in repentance. Take the time that you need to, to think, to pray. When you're ready, you can come up and get the, get the elements. But let's make much of Jesus together as we enjoy this meal, as we sing songs together, as we pray together, as we join our voices, all of it in gratitude for what Christ has done. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your kindness your grace toward us. You've lavished us with your grace. That your grace runs so deep that we can never exhaust it, that it goes into places of deep brokenness and darkness and brings renewal and healing. God, I pray that you would help each one of us to embrace the reality that we are needy people, that we would admit our need, and that we would, again and again, that we would believe Jesus. We would believe in your word, that we believe you are the word, that we would trust in you, that even the things, your commands, your law, it, it is, it's the best possible way to live, not to earn anything, but because you have earned our salvation. You have achieved everything. And now we get to live more fully into what you've created us to be, to be able to enjoy your presence. And so God, I pray that your spirit right now would be leading us uh, in repentance, reminding us again and again of the gospel, bringing that rest and renewal. And God, as we sing together, as we participate in this meal, as we rejoice and celebrate your achievement, God, I pray that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.